Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, an audio series about video games and the video game industry, as they were in the past and how they came to be the way they are today. I'm Richard Moss and this is episode 27, Links, or the story of a game that shaped a genre, and the shadow it still casts. We'll get going in just a moment. You'd be mad to do it nowadays, to rename your hit franchise, not to cash in on a celebrity endorsement, but just to change the name. To throw out all the brand recognition and cachet and search engine optimization that you have built up over years of hard work, and start again. For no other reason than that the old name was less descriptive than the new name. The old name somehow less efficient in communicating its message to a small segment of an already small population that knows how to understand that message in the first place. Because your old name says, I'm probably a sports game, and your new name, depending on who you say it to, manages to say both, I'm probably not for you, if you don't know what this means, and I'm a golf simulation, both at the same time. But some 30 years ago, long before search engine optimization had entered marketing lexicon, there was a company called Access Software that did just that. They replaced their best-selling, critically acclaimed multi-platform computer golf series leaderboard with an entirely new franchise called Lynx. They gambled successfully, I might add, on a change from their working title that had been bandied around to industry insiders and members of the press of world-class leaderboard VGA to become Lynx, a name drawn from a popular style of golf course, revered for its undulating, uneven surface and often unforgiving conditions, where off the well-tamed, short-cropped grass of the fairway you find thick rough, or longer grass for the total golf newbies, and deep bunkers, or sand traps, as they're also called. Lynx golf is widely considered the purest, best, and most challenging form of golf. And as Lynx was to golf, Access believed their game links the challenge of golf would be to the virtual form. I was one of those kids that was learning to program in like junior high and high school and wanted to create and publish a video game when I was really, really young. And uh, so I started learning languages and finally got into programming. This is Vance Cook, the instigator, I suppose you could say of the first Lynx game. I'm Vance Cook. I'm one of the developers of the original Lynx and Lynx 386 Pro products. Later went on to make a series of golf games after I left, including PGA Championship Golf and the Tiger Woods PC Wii Xbox 360 series. But before he did any of that, Vance was just some kid with big ambitions. I was making a game that I wanted to publish So I showed it to them and asked them if they wanted to publish it. I called it Vikings of Svalbard, and it was kind of a global strategic ship battle game and kind of based out of, you know, that Viking island of Svalbard and branched out of there. It wasn't finished. It wasn't anywhere close to being finished, and it wasn't really good enough yet, but They offered me a job on the spot, and so I thought about it for a few days, and and I accepted. Never did publish it, 
thankfully, <laughs> uh, the world avoided that that uh, bit of garbage. Rather than pay him to continue creating his Viking strategy game, Access added Vance to their team of in-house porters. His job was to write conversions of their games for Apple platforms, the Apple II and the Macintosh. Access had a thriving little studio by that point. They'd earned their fame in the games industry a few years earlier with the hit action-heavy war games Beachhead and Raid Over Moscow. Then... In 1986, co-founder Bruce Carver and his brother Roger had branched the company out into sport, with 10-pin bowling game 10th Frame and golf game Leaderboard. The latter of these was a hit. Now, the trick with Leaderboard was that it wasn't just a great game. It was also a technological marvel. For one thing, it managed to swap out the traditional overhead perspective used in prior golf games for a pseudo-3D behind the golfer view. A feat accomplished simultaneously by a few others, including Microsmith with Mean 18 and Practical Computer Applications Incorporated with Mac Golf, which is to take nothing away from the achievement, especially as Mean 18 and Mac Golf were made for considerably more powerful machines than Leaderboard. They were for new 16 bit computers like the IBM PC and Macintosh, not the crusty old 8 bit Commodore 64. To pull off this feat of pseudo-3D magic, the Carvers had had to cut out much of the true golfing experience. No fairways or bunkers or elevation, except on the green, which looked no more or less green than anything else. Not even a single tree, just grass and water, formed into chains of islands. And wind that blows in a constant direction relative to you, the golfer rather than the course, a hyper-localised weather event somehow formed specifically around you. A shortcut that made sense in the code, if not in reality. But they'd had the detail where it counted most, in the execution of that faux-3D perspective, as convincing as it was barren, and in the feel of the shots, smooth and precise, with any of the clubs of a real golfer, with three distinct actions, press the swing button to begin, and hold it down to fill the power meter, then release it at the desired power level, and finally press again at the right moment to snap it straight, hook it left or slice it right. And then there was the golfer himself, and his impossibly realistic swing, hand-traced from individual frames of a video recording they'd made of Roger Carver's own swing, to ensure you feel like you're playing golf, because all those things they'd cut were ultimately expendable if only the golfer himself looked real. And with a real-world handicap of two, making him just a little worse than a low-ranked professional, a virtual rendition of Roger could do just that. Leaderboard was a big hit, both with critics and with owners of 8-bit computers, so Access quickly made a sequel called Leaderboard Tournament, which offered four new courses. Then they followed that with another sequel, Executive Leaderboard, that added bunkers and trees. And then, just two years on from the first leaderboard, in 1988, they released World Class Leaderboard, which introduced more of the trappings of real golf, like fairways and rough, and irregularly shaped greens, because previously they had all just been circles, and which not only had versions available for both 8- and 16-bit computers, but also had course expansion discs sold separately, containing licensed versions of real courses. Far from the wasteland of sports games today, 
Back then, competition between different sports game developers was fierce. In the world of virtual golf, leaderboard arguably had the edge. With its rotoscoped animation, its well-tuned swing mechanics, and detailed course graphics. But Mean 18, Jack Nicholas Golf, and PGA Tour Golf all gave it a run for its money in the battle for retail supremacy. And even on Macintosh computers, where world-class leaderboard faced off against the massively successful Mac Golf, which had six-figure sales numbers on just its one platform, back in the days when six figures was still huge. Even there, on the computer that had the fewest games coming out, even there where your competitor was the most successful game on the system, even there you could find multiple good golf games to choose from. And aside from personal preference, there really wasn't a lot to separate all these games from each other. But Vance Cook saw a gap in the market, something that nobody was doing, anywhere. So... And until then, you know, we'd been in the leaderboard and then the world-class leaderboard business. And uh, I was pushing Bruce to let me go and do a next generation version of that. So we'd been talking around the office that it needed to be advanced and, you know, needed to, to go. And... Uh, and, and and initially, it wasn't even to go and create, you know, like the, uh, the next generation golf game. But um, like I said, I just kind of begged and begged Bruce to let me go and take it on. And at the time, remember, you know, games were flat. So the, like our golf games, they were entirely flat. There was no 3D undulation in, in the terrain and the physics was therefore, you know, very, very simple. So... I started exploring with ways of, of creating terrain. Quickly, he landed on the idea of light and shadow. Just as artists use shading to make a circle look like a sphere, Vance realized he could make simple shaded polygons from segments of a curve. He could throw shade at the competition by throwing shade into his game. Because even the most basic shadows and shading would allow him to bring real depth to these otherwise flat worlds. And so, you, you know, you would get a little bit of this uh, blocky look to it. But, it, I mean, it started showing some promise. Like it was, uh, okay, well, I could see how that could be a green mound and, and digging out some yellow bunkers. And then, you know, I, I dug deeper and deeper into some other techniques of, of shading that would make that look a little smoother. Now, so we were, we were based in Utah, and... And at that time, uh, University of Utah and Evans and Sutherland, which was kind of a quasi-educational government company that ended up creating a lot of um, simulation software, you know, for the Air Force. I mean, they they were kind of pioneers in graphics. So I, you know, I had access to, you know, books and information out of there and, and then found some techniques of shading it that actually smoothed it out really nice. And so, you know, I spent, you know, days and days and weeks working on kind of this little sample piece of a hole for a golf course. And before long, I, uh, I had uh, like a couple rolling hills of grass and then a dugout bunker. And, you know, people would start coming by my desk and say, wow, ooh, look at that. And then, you know, somebody else would say, hey, you know, you come see this, Bruce, come see this, you know, 
Kevin, whoever. And uh, pretty soon it got attention and everybody says, wow, I can see that. You know, we could we could pull this off as a as a game. And uh, so then Bruce said, you know, okay, let's go, let's go build this. And he added a couple of guys to the team. So Roger Carver, who's Bruce's brother, and Kevin Homer joined with me. And uh, the three of us and more people were added over time. Just started building that. The idea was essentially to reinvent virtual golf. And it became Vance's obsession. So I was intrigued by, like, you know, walking out to courses and looking at them and and seeing how they were and trying to invent ways to simulate that on on a golf game. And and I was I was just so driven by that, you know, at that phase in my life that I ate, drank and slept it. And Bruce Carver set a very high bar for quality. You know, when I joined the, the company, I kind of had an idea of what I thought quality was and where the the bar was to, to, to meet in, in terms of, you know, de- delivering a quality product. But Bruce's bar was so much higher. And, and honestly, he just opened my eyes to what could be done and what could be expected. He, uh, he understood quality and he pushed and he drove for marks that were high that, that I never really thought were possible. Goodness, he, he was an engineer by education. This is former Access Software programmer Kevin Homer, who joined the company in 1984. And he, he played in a rock band to make his way through school to get his degree. And just a, wonder, a, a wonderful person, very caring. You know, of course, he expected high things and, and very high performance of all of us. And, you know, we would take frequent breaks from working. We worked a lot. You know, 12 to 16 hour days, six days a week. But we would make sure that we did plenty of research and development, which normally involved throwing our our golf clubs in the trunk and going up to the Bountiful Golf Course or one of the golf courses and just playing golf. We just absolutely loved it. And we would try to think how we could incorporate real golf into what we were doing. We'll continue with the story right after this break. The Life and Times of Video Games takes a lot of work to produce, and I mean a lot. Between archival research, interviews, writing, editing, mixing, mastering, music composition, and all the other bits that I have to do. And that makes it hard for me to be consistent with my publishing schedule. Because I do this on the side of freelancing, and the show's only income stream right now is crowdfunding. So if you'd like to support me, to help me make more episodes, and maybe even go full-time on it one day, please tell other people about the show, and if you can afford it, send a bit of money my way via paypal.me slash mossrc or patreon.com slash life and times of video games. Now let's get back to the show. When we left off, Kevin Homer had just mentioned how they'd work long days, often more than 12 hours at a time, but they always made time to head out to the golf course for a round. And as they played they'd try to think of ways to incorporate real golf into their game. For Lynx, that meant a raft of new innovations. So, I mean, I just really modeled a golf ball like, you know, a golf manufacturing company would and used, you know, all the vector math for forces of a ball coming in with 
you know, it's spin and against a face with a certain number of properties and spin and how would it interact? There was a lot of 2D and 3D matrix manipulation to be able to say, okay, well, here we've got 3D coordinates and we've got to now map that on the 2D screen. For me, as a geek and a guy that has spent many years in algebra, geometry, trigonometry, and calculus, I was one of the few people that actually got to use that. You know, everybody said, well, you're never going to need any of that. In my case, we actually did. <laughs> so it took a lot of math, math calculation to do what we were doing. When you have an object that is flying through uh, virtual space and it has a velocity in it and, and it impacts the surface with a different uh, angularity, what is the impact? You know, what's, what's the the firmness of the surface that it's impacting what does that do to the vector of the ball so yeah we were calculating all of that in real time and trying to get as close as possible to real world situations and then to be able to display that correctly on screen so there's a lot of math behind it and it was you know we didn't invent the math we just came up with ways to use existing calculations to do it correctly Then there was the actual process of hitting the ball. Before Lynx, most golf games used a vertical or horizontal power meter. The fuller it got, the farther you'd hit the ball. Though, as in leaderboard, you may have needed to worry about tapping on or releasing the button at the right time to complete the shot, without sending the ball off course. Lynx hardly revolutionised this mechanic, though Vance would later head up development on a few games that did. But Lynx did make one crucial change. It threw out the old power bar, and in its place it put, well, a power curve. A C-shaped shot indicator that visually mapped the power of your shot directly to the height of your backswing. Just a little tweak, but a huge step forward in the intuitiveness of virtual golf, especially for the genre's core audience of actual golfers, and one that their competition quickly adapted for their own games. And if actual golfers were predisposed to appreciate the new swing gauge, they were certain to be floored by the graphical detail of Lynx. It wasn't just that Lynx had undulating terrain, it's that Lynx actually mapped almost one-to-one with the real-world versions of its courses. Just the one course at the beginning, but many more in add-on discs that you could buy after launch. And it's telling just how far ahead of the curve they were here, to consider the fact that Access tapped into development techniques that are still used to bolster realism in cutting-edge, big-budget games today. Like photogrammetry, where you reconstruct physical objects as 3D models, using photographs. And this, remember, is 1990, years before consumer graphics cards would reshape the video game landscape. So, you know, we put all those white markers out there and ran a plane over the top of it and know, digitize the photos, and we could extract, you know, three-dimensional data out of that. One of the very first courses that we did was Bountiful Golf Course, because our office was in Bountiful. We loved playing Bountiful Golf Course, and we could drive from our, our office in Bountiful up to the city offices, and we could get the contour layouts of the entire golf course, and we would hand trace those and convert them into a digital database that had the terrain. And then we would render the terrain based off of our hand tracings of of the contour of the golf course. 
we would take photographs of the tree, the actual trees that were there, the actual buildings, so that we could then, with our terrain rendering, we could then place objects, you know, the buildings, the trees, the rocks, the, you know, the weeds, onto the golf course. And in the early days, that's how it was done. Later on, what was, you know, links and some of the other versions, we had a, a much better system. We would rent a helicopter and we would take 3D elevation readings across the entire golf course so we'd have a much more precise terrain map. And then we added people to create the golf courses and to create all the data and plot things. So this was the a transition between, I mean, just kind of basically representing a golf course and actually representing a real golf course. So we modeled, you know, bunker lines, fairway lines, undulation of real golf courses to a T. And it, you know, it took tons of time and lots of effort. Access actually had a couple of dedicated people on staff whose job it was to travel the world acquiring licenses for famous courses and photographing them for reproduction in the game. And all that time and effort was clearly reflected in the game which would painstakingly render out the course, right there on the screen in front of you, layer upon layer over anywhere from several seconds to two minutes, depending on your CPU's power and the graphical settings you've chosen. Though most likely and most commonly around half a minute. So you'd hit a ball, the ball would land out there, and then you'd wait 20 or 30 seconds. And we, we kind of did some studying on perception if we drew the world in front of you, you know, you were kind of intrigued by it, you know, coming up in front of you and it entertained your mind and it didn't feel as slow. Uh, whereas if we just put a little spinner and waiting 20, 30 seconds just felt forever. So, of course, we had these big debates and these big worries. Will the market tolerate a 20 to 30 second redraw on a 286? And we didn't know, you know, we didn't know if they would. We were hoping, and it turns out they did, right? I mean, that turned into links, of course. And uh, people were so interested to see their computer, you know, attempt this and render a real world with a real position, you know, and they were willing to put up with a lot in order to have that. Of course, that turned into Lynx 386, and the machines got faster, and our rendering ability got better. But that's a lesson I've learned many times, you know, in businesses and in tasks since then. I always refer back to that story of how if you advance it and you capture people's imagination, they'll they'll generally tolerate you and reward you. But you got to be on the bleeding edge of that. Which Lynx certainly was. This was a game that Strategy Plus magazine called an astonishing piece of software. That PC magazine said it lets you play golf as realistically as possible on a PC. And the computer gaming world gushed was worlds apart from every golf game before it. So impressive, they added, that you could at times read the slopes of a green with the naked eye, rather than studying a grid overlay. All this glowing praise, despite the fact that Links had no tournament mode, no statistics, no female golfer option, because they ran out of space on the disc. No computer opponents. One. Just one single course built in. And this aforementioned glacial loading speed. 
Most people just didn't care. Lynx blew them all away with its graphics, with its physics, with its sense of realism. And I must also note its sound. Get there. You see, Lynx was released at a time when most PCs had no built-in sound card, when they had no native capability to play digitised sound samples, nor much of anything else. When they sounded like this. Access wasn't having that, not for a simulation like Lynx. Lucky for them, a few years earlier, one of their programmers, Steve Witzel, had devised a custom sound driver that allowed standard PC speakers to play back digitised sound samples for the DOS port of world-class leaderboard. From my vantage point, it looks safely in the fairway. And somewhat amusingly, for those of you who know the story of Silicon Beach Software's custom sound driver for Macintosh a few years before that, in the mid-1980s, which I covered in episode 20, Witzel called this sound driver Real Sound. He didn't intentionally or knowingly choose the same name. It just made sense to call it that. And so with help from Real Sound, in-house sound designer John Clark was able to instill in Lynx an extra level of authenticity. An impression, if not yet a distinct feeling, of being on the course. With birds chirping and wind blowing and flags flapping and a buddy there with you to share in the excitement. Or to rub in your mistakes. Back in the day when we were developing this, you know, and I mentioned we would take a break from all the hard work we were doing and we would, when we very first had that office in Salt Lake City at the engineering firm, one of, there's a very large city park that's fairly near to that. And there's a lot of trees there and we used to love and go play frisbee golf. We had our own, you know, version of a golf course where you'd start off a couple hundred yards away have to throw the frisbee and uh, take two or three shots until you could hit a specific tree. Now, now that's a little bit of the background because one of the guys that we used to play with, uh, his, his name is uh, Jim. Jim was not a very good frisbee player. <laughs> he didn't throw very straight. And he was constantly just throwing into the trees and bouncing them off the trees. And when we were playing frisbee golf, we hit into a tree, and one of us would say, "Looks like you hit tree, Jim." Now, if you notice inside the game, one of our comments that we have is that if you hit your ball into the tree, that might trigger the the, the audio sound that says, "Looks like you hit a tree, Jim." Looks like I hit the tree, Jim. The following decade for Lynx would be mostly one of refinement. Better graphics, faster screen redraws, more features and courses and modes. Each game designed to fulfil the dreams and desires of a large and passionate fanbase that was encouraged to write in suggestions for the next game. None were as mind-blowing as the first links, or as dominant as the second. Nice try. Which spent nearly three years permanently lodged high up the monthly best-selling PC games charts on the way to around half a million lifetime sales. But all the Lynx games were well-loved and well-received, all sat firm in the top 10 best-selling games for months at a time, sometimes accompanied there by course add-on packs, as Lynx was the golfer's golf game. The one for the purists. Crushed that one. And its influence reached far wider, as tends to happen when a game defines or redefines a genre. The Lynx formula became the base formula 
for video game golf. You can have that one. But here the strands of influence are more intertwined than usual, as Lynx was no mere monolith to the genre. Still your turn. It formed a literal base for the first three versions of Microsoft Golf, a mass-market Windows 95 game made by a team at Access using Save. the Lynx engine, but stripping out much of the character and control from the Lynx game. But not the widely criticised fourth or fifth entries, which went to a different studio after Access decided Lynx needed to finally jump on the Windows bandwagon. And so it didn't make sense to keep making Microsoft Golf to compete with themselves. And that then led to Microsoft buying Access software, bringing them in-house to own the golf simulation market, whereupon Lynx began its slow decline. Hamstrung rather than bolstered by big, mighty Microsoft, with its marketing clout and retail muscle. I hate it when I... Declining not just from the inevitable culture clash you might expect internally, but also in other terms. Here's Kevin Homer with an illustrative example. So, so just for instance, let's take a printed manual. For printing manuals for any of the uh, access software products, we have very good long-standing relationships with printers and the prices they can get for us and, and how much it would cost to get a manual printed and how long it would take. And we had a really good working system for that. When under the Microsoft system, there was a fixed price for all the documentation, which was usually, not usually, was very significantly higher than what we had been able to negotiate as access software, which kind of doesn't make sense. You know, Microsoft, they're going to do volumes and huge volumes of printing for whatever. You think you'd be able to get the price down. But they had a standardized price that was much more than what we had been using for many, many years. Now, part of the reason why we were very successful with our product line at, at access software is we could keep the costs low. And all of a sudden, the cost for a manual and for inserting a CD into the box and printing a box, you know, all those things that uh, you have to understand the overhead of before you can even ship the, the box out the door, all of a sudden those prices went very, very high and were very, very difficult to renegotiate. Meanwhile, Vance had left Access in 1993 after completing development on Lynx 386 Pro to start a company called Headgate Studios. He had had ambitions to go into business productivity software and other non-golf, non-games things. But after two years of struggling to gain even the tiniest bit of traction, he and his team had decided to go back to what he knew best, to make a new golf game. Of course, I, I had you know, no IP from them. There was nothing that I could take from that to benefit except you know, what was up here. And so... I started over completely again, wrote a, uh, you know, created a folder, opened up file, started typing, right? Just rewrote a new rendering engine, a new physics engine, and uh, started over. That new game became Front Page Sports Golf, a golf-themed variant on publishing giant Sierra's PC sports franchise with a fun mouse-based swing mechanic. And then to PGA Championship Golf, still under Sierra's wing, which got rave reviews and strong sales. And finally, after buying back his studio from Sierra to prevent its closure when Sierra pulled the plug, it led to Vance and his team taking over development on the PC version 
and then later the console versions too, of that old Lynx rival, PGA Tour Golf, right at that moment when it was rebranded as Tiger Woods PGA Tour. But for Lynx, the end was nigh. It's in the rough. After years of fading market share from an incredible 65% of the PC golf game market pre-Microsoft, and despite still chart-ranking six-figure unit sales for each game, the Lynx team was disbanded after releasing the Xbox title, Lynx 2004. And I'm curious, uh, as someone who at that point was on the <laughs> over in the opposition camp, uh, what what is your view on how Tiger Woods was able to take over the market while Lynx, the previous leader, faded away? Yeah, I mean, that was bittersweet, right? Because a talented team and I worked for years and years and years to make Lynx the leader. And then now I'm putting every energy I can, every bit of energy I can, into killing it and, you know, trying to establish a new leader. And so it was bittersweet, but, you know, of course my loyalties had to be with the, the company that I've done a new deal with and, and who are paying me to do a job. And so we, uh, so we did that. Remember too, the, the complexity of that situation, because at, at the same time, it is kind of little narrow window there was links on the market and PGA Championship Golf on the market still with Sierra and Tiger Woods all in there, all of which had, you know, substantial pieces of code that, you know, my team had put together in it. And, uh, and I'm trying to kill them all with Tiger Woods. So, so why did Tiger Woods win out in the end? It's, it's a complicated series of things. One of them I lo- alluded to earlier. Remember, Lynx had simulation roots. I had simulation roots. And EA Sports drug me into a, a more mass, um, mass market style of gameplay. And uh, that's a, that was a strong contributing factor to why EA Sports won that battle. Two... The brands, Tiger, PGA Tour, Pebble Beach, all were really strong brands that were better than what Microsoft or what PGA Championship had, Sierra had with PGA Championship. And three, EA was killing it. They were strong. They built a great sports brand and they they were really good at uh, what they were doing. And so... Credit EA for marketing clout and intelligence, and they they killed everybody. And of course, as I've talked about before, back in the Premier Manager episode, sports games had by this point entered a phase of Highlander-esque consolidation, from which this niche genre of golf games was no exception. You know, it had it had strong sales and enough to support you know maybe a couple golf games. But there were too many golf games on the market, and you know, for the the limited interest compared to FIFA or Madden football, couldn't just it just wasn't a big enough market to support a Lynx and a PGA Championship and a Mean 18 and Tiger Woods and all of those. So all those factors combined to to basically make the Tiger Woods product the leader there and and basically defeat everybody else. 
It's hard to pin down what, exactly, the Lynx legacy is today. The Tiger Woods game seized control of the market with some superb, mass-market-friendly virtual golfing, where it's more about the emotional experience of golf than the actual experience. And with a few brilliant control innovations from Vance and his team that I'll cover in a new soundbite soon, it really was something pretty special. But that series stopped coming nearly a decade ago. And Vance and Kevin have been out of the industry for a little longer than that. There is some direct Lynx legacy to touch on elsewhere, I guess. Roger Carver just retired recently, after 20 years of working on the golf-simulated True Golf, technology which he built with Kevin and founded with Access co-founder Chris Jones, who is perhaps better known for playing the titular role of Tex Murphy in the other Access Software hit franchise. You've probably seen True Golf, maybe even tried it. It's the thing where you hit a golf ball into a net, and then watch the path it would have taken on a big projector screen. But aside from that, aside from EA's new game, and this True Golf simulator, there's not much of a clear Link's legacy left in the way of golf games or sports games today. The genre kind of plateaued, I think because the technology to do a really good golf game had already been almost perfected. And so there stopped being much of a reason for people to buy a new one to replace the one they already owned. So we can, and should, celebrate the incredible achievements and influence of Lynx, and the longevity it had. But in this show I like to connect us to the now to wrap up these stories with a commentary on how they help us to understand the present day. And what good when we look forward rather than back is there in exploring a genre-defining game from a genre that barely still exists? Is it that genres rise and fall, cycling in and out as the technologies that drive them emerge and fade? Maybe? Or maybe the value of Link's in thinking about the games industry of today and tomorrow, maybe that value is as a cautionary tale, a moment of pause to ponder how fleeting it is to be the best. The Life and Times of Video Games is created entirely by me, Richard Moss. My thanks, as always, to my wonderful supporters on Patreon for making this show possible, especially to my producer-level backers, Seth Robinson, Wade Trigaskis, Rob Eberhardt, Vivek Mohan, Simon Moss, and Eric Zocker. You, too, can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month by heading to patreon.com slash lifeandtimes of video games. Depending on your pledge tier, you can get behind-the-scenes content, research notes, interruption-free episodes voting rights on upcoming episodes, and, and other stuff. If you're interested, that's patreon.com slash lifeandtimesofvideogames. You can also support me through one-off donations by paypal.me slash mossrc. I'll have links to those and to a few things mentioned in this episode in the show notes, which you can always find at my website, lifeandtimes.games. Until next time, please remember in this era of global pandemic, to wear a mask and do your social distancing, but also take care of yourselves and each other. 
My name is Richard Moss, and this was The Life and Times of Video Games. Thanks for listening. See ya.